following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. We are still in Hebrews, and we are specifically on Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, but I want to start back a little bit, just so we have context leading us into where we're going today. So I'm going to begin in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Let us all be thankful that we are part of an unshakable kingdom, and offer to God worship that pleases him, and reflects the awe and reverence we have toward him, for he is like a fierce fire that consumes everything. And just a reminder, when we talked about that a couple weeks ago, this is a fire of purification. That if you give your life to Jesus and you're now a follower of God, God will purify you. He will burn out these things in your life that aren't the gold that he's looking for. And it will be painful. It will be costly. But what comes out of that is something beautiful. Following that, then, is this phrase, let brotherly love continue. And the Greek for that is Philadelphia love. It's different from agape, but it's pretty close, actually. It's this idea of loving each other as if we were all brothers and sisters, which, as followers of Jesus, we are. And then what comes after that is, I think, a list helping us understand what it looks like to love each other in this fashion. So the first thing we talked about was, don't forget to extend your hospitality to all, even to strangers. For as you know, some have unknowingly shown kindness to heavenly messengers in this way. The second thing was, remember those in prison for their beliefs, as if you were their cellmate, and care for any who suffer harsh treatment, as you are all one body. And now I think today's verse is meant to be part three of this list. Hold marriage in high esteem and keep the marriage bed pure because God will judge those who commit sexual sins outside of the boundaries of marriage. Depending on your translation, it might use a couple different words, just different ways of describing any activity that's outside of the boundaries of God's design. So as I was reading this, I was thinking, this is an interesting thing to add to the list of Philadelphia or brotherly love. Because typically we think of sexual love as erotic love, which it is. But there's something about the implications for us as human beings in terms of simply our ability to act toward others uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's going to affect more than just us and our spouse or us and the person we're involved in. We'll get to that in a little bit. But I think there's implications for the community. This, this whole section is about what it looks like to build a church community that lives in peace, that lives in harmony, that loves each other genuinely. It becomes this place of, of safety, of comfort, of truth, a, a place in which we can challenge each other and encourage each other, all these things. And as part of this list, how we handle our sex life is very important. A guy named Dan Allender phrased it this way. The most crucial theological truth about sexuality is that God loves sex and evil hates it. God made us sexual and he glories in his plan for our union and joy. Evil hates what God loves and it has found that more harm can be done through sex than perhaps any other means. Often the chief battleground for the human soul is the terrain of sexuality. Uh, I would suggest that's abundantly true in our culture. We're simply surrounded by, well, we're saturated by messages that have to do with sex and sexuality, most of them very much in opposition to what Scripture has to say. So I'm going to talk today about 
sex, what it looks like to honor marriage, what it looks like to keep the marriage bed pure, which is a broader way of saying some other things. Uh, and, and what I want to land on then at the end of this morning is why that matters for the church community. Why it matters what you do with your sex life. It's more than a personal issue between you and God. It's more than an issue between you and your spouse. This is of community interest. Not that we want to know what you're doing necessarily, but that how you handle this part of your life will form you into a particular kind of person. And that particular kind of person comes into this community. And now that begins to form this community. So I want to talk today about the tensions when the Bible talks about sex and sexuality. Uh, first point, sex is ordinary, but it's also holy. What I mean by ordinary, I had originally used the word common, but common makes it sound like it's not important. By ordinary, I simply mean it happens a lot, right? For all of human history, a lot of sex has been going on. Um, I'm going to try to be blunt this morning. I'm not going to do like a sex ed class like you would get at a school, but I want to speak honestly about sex. Can we all just agree a lot of sex has happened over the history of the world? Yeah, okay. Let's, okay, I figured we could agree on that. So God created it, and he called it good. Genesis 1, when God is done with all of his creation, not only does he say it's good, it's very good. And in that creation, we have Adam and Eve, and I think it's safe to assume that Adam and Eve were enjoying each other's company. That's God's plan. It's part of his design. And so uh, I'm pretty sure he made it fun because he wants us to do it. Uh, the command in Genesis is be fruitful and multiply. Listen, there's incentive for that. You know what I'm saying? It's not a chore. Uh, unless sinful aspects break in. And, and some of you in this room have experienced the abusive use of sex in your life. What I'm talking about is the ideal of how God designed it to be used. If we're living within that plan, there's real incentive to be fruitful and multiply. On the other hand, even though it's very natural and common in the sense that it happens all the time, it's holy. So holy is just a word that means set apart. We've been given this aspect of our life, and God desires for us to set this apart to his purposes. So the Bible actually puts sin in a category of its own, sexual sin. And the writers of scripture describe it as a sin against our own body. And it doesn't describe any other sin that way. And I think that can be read two ways. One is, there's something significant about what it does to us. But also, I think it's something significant about what it does to the body of Christ, the church. And there's a reason for that. And I believe it's this, that sex is the only act that is inherently covenantal. In other words, in God's design and in a biblical worldview, the act of sex is meant to initiate a covenant. And then the ongoing acts of sex are meant to reaffirm that covenant. So it's covenant initiating and covenant sustaining. So when the Bible uses the language, I believe it's Paul who says, listen, and he uses the example of someone visiting a prostitute. He says, do you realize that when that happens that two have become one? To, it initiated a covenant in a way that nothing else can do. I can shake your hand and we don't become one. I can give you a, a hug and we don't become one. We can share a glass of water and swap spit in that fashion and we don't become one. 
There's one thing in life that is inherently covenantal, and that is the act of sex. It is meant to initiate covenant. And by covenant, I mean the holy institution of marriage. And then in marriage, it is an ongoing act that reminds us of the covenant that we initiated. And it's meant to be a covenant sustainer. So um, I'll try to make it awkward here for a minute. That shouldn't be hard. Uh, so I preached on this, I don't know, five or six years ago was when I first rolled out from the pulpit this idea of sex as covenant and as a covenant sustainer. And it happened to be at a time in Sheila and Mai's marriage where there was a real lull in um, our desire for each other. And I'm not going to go into any more details from that over the pulpit. You can ask me about that later. I don't mind telling you about it. But it was just, we were struggling. And we recognized it was actually symptomatic of a deeper struggle in our marriage. I tend to think of sex as a barometer of health. Either individual health in, in marriage or your health as a couple. Because sometimes sex can be a struggle because of physical issues and sickness and illness. But if it's a struggle between you as a couple, I suspect it's a barometer of something else going on in your relationship, something that is not in the order of God's design, because God's design is that this continue to unite and build and bring us together and continue to reinitiate this covenant. And Sheila and I actually had a conversation where we said, listen, uh, we, we have to be more proactive in this covenant-sustaining activity. I think both my boys are making tacos this morning. Okay. I was going to apologize to them for this. But we said, okay, um, this seems to be a biblical command. Really, I could give you other verses. Uh, and whatever's going, whatever's happening in our relationship, uh, this barometer is telling us something isn't right. O okay, we need to then make a plan to sustain covenant through the act of sex. But you know what else that required of us? Neither one of us wanted to go into that covenant reminder angry or annoyed or distant. It meant now we had to re-engage in our relationship in every other way first. Does that make sense? And it revitalized us. And I don't just mean in that area. I just mean in terms of our relationship. Like, okay, we got to be purposeful to, to do this. So to become one. It's a covenant initiating, a covenant sustaining act. Uh, the line of autonomy is blurred in sex. In the same way, in some ways, it's blurred in pregnancy. There are two that are one in a different sense when someone is pregnant. It's meant to break down that barrier of otherness, right? Which is why there is no sex with no strings attached. Sex inescapably binds us with the other person. It doesn't matter how casually we want to approach it. It doesn't matter if we say, this won't impact me. It doesn't matter if we say, this is just a hookup and I don't care. It is inescapable because God has designed us to initiate covenant or sustained covenant through this particular act. Uh, when Catholics do what they call theology of the body, they have this line that I love. It's called lying with the body. And that is, if I am not covenanted with someone, but I do an act with them that is a covenant-initiating act, I'm lying to them. Not with my words, but simply with my body. Because on the one hand, I'm saying, hey, I want to be in covenant with you. It's inescapable if I have sex. 
But on the other hand, I'm going, no, I'm not interested in having covenant with you. In a biblical worldview, that is an incoherent position to take. It is intended to initiate covenant and to sustain covenant. So, while it's common or ordinary, it's also very holy. It's also a private act with public consequences. So, I don't think this is news, but sex is not meant to be a spectator sport. There's a reason that even our culture tells people to get a room if things are getting out of hand. We don't want to see what's going on. Right? There's something about it that it's meant to be intensely personal and intensely private. And you can't simply dismiss it in a humanistic sense of saying, hey, it's just two bodies doing what two bodies do, whatever's fine. No, we instinctively know it's more than this. You don't have to be a Christian to know this. As a Christian, the Bible makes it clear. But even those who aren't Christians aren't interested in seeing other people's business. It's meant to be private. And when we make it public, pornography is a great example, what follows is always destructive. It's not meant to be public. We aren't intended to make it public, and we aren't intended to support those who do, which has implications for our entertainment and what we do on our computers. It's meant to be a private act. And everything we do as Christians is meant to, meant to tell that narrative. It will be private, not just for me, but I will encourage the privacy in others. And yet the consequences are very public. So kids, for one. If everything's clicking biologically, kids are almost inevitably a result. So public consequence. And as you all know, you've experienced just in this church, when people have kids, they kind of get into your space, right? I, I had at least one kid that I think got into everybody's space. You were all very generous in helping me to raise him in some ways. And I was, this morning as we were kind of hanging out here waiting for the service to start, there's a couple kids up on the stage. Guess what? It's community business now. Right? So, private act with very public consequences. But I would add that there's more than that. And that is, how we act on our sexual urges is going to form us. It's going to make us a particular kind of person. And I mean how we act both in marriage and out of marriage. How we use what God has given us in a way that honors God and honors others by following God's design will form us. And it's inevitable that the self that is formed by our sex life will interact with everybody else. So, is our life characterized by godly restraint? If it is, I suspect not only what you bring to your own life, but what you bring to this community is wonderful. right? But if we're characterized by just kind of unfettered expression, I'll do what I want, that that's going to have a ripple effect too. And honestly, I, I think you, you don't have, I don't, I don't think I have to convince you of this. You know the stories of what happens when there's no boundaries around our sex life, specifically biblical boundaries. Uh, I would love to hear you give me a story where it was just wonderful in every possible way. I don't think so, because there's a ripple effect. There's wages to sin. We reap the things that we sow, so we can sow good things or we can sow bad things. We can sow restraint and honor and holiness, or we can sow the opposite. It's inevitable that we reap it. And what we become 
impacts everybody around us. So you probably heard the phrase, uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, and it's a fantastic ad, but it's clearly not true. Right? If you rack up debt in Vegas, you don't get to leave it behind when you leave. If you get married in a chapel, in a drunken stupor, you're married when you leave Vegas. Right? It's a clever ad, but it's just not in reality with the way the world works. Because we can't segment our lives. We can't do something here in one area and go, you know what, I'll just do this. Then I'll just seal this off from the rest of me, and now I'll be this. We, we don't live segmented lives. We're unified. We're whole. And what we do in one part is going to influence who we are as a person. I've heard this phrase used that our skin and our soul are connected. What we do with our skin inevitably impacts our soul. How we train our soul inevitably impacts what we do with our skin. They are inseparable. And in fact, I would add another layer now. The Bible describes followers of Jesus as like living stones that make up the church. All right. If you're a follower of Jesus, God is using you to build his church. What kind of stone are we? Are we the crumbly kind? Now, we're not going to be perfect stones on this side of heaven, right? Not going to be perfect on this side of heaven. But what kind of stones are we? What kind of church is being built by our presence? This is a key area of life in which we can have an impact. So it's common and it's holy. It's a private act with public consequences. And uh, it's sometimes almost simultaneously embarrassing and exhilarating. So, some of us have had young children who have walked into a room at an inopportune time and you've had to lie to them and say that mommy and daddy were wrestling. And they're like, who won? You're like, well, nobody now, thanks. Uh, so you, you kind of cover up and, and lie about it, let's be honest. And, and yet moments before that, there was no shame, there was exhilaration. I mean, read Song of Solomon. Uh, in the ancient Hebrew culture, they didn't let men read Song of Solomon until either they were married or they were 30. And if you read Song of Solomon with a creative imagination, be open-minded, it's a, it's a racy book. And I, I've seen Song of Solomon at times, I think, overly spiritualized. Now, I think there's an argument to be made that it's meant to capture something about God's love for his people. But I think the book was written to celebrate marital sexual love. So, it's exhilarating. If you read it, the people here in Song of Solomon are clearly excited about what's going on. I think that's meant to be a model for us in our marriages. That there's nothing inherently shameful about it. In fact, I think we have to be careful in our family discussions with our kids and in our church discussion that we don't present some sex as something that's meant to be embarrassing and, and kind of dirty and you just don't talk about it, which is why I'm trying to be a little blunt about it this morning. My wife and I both grew up in church communities that kind of, they spent so much time saying, now don't, don't do this, don't mess with it, don't, what, by the time we got married, it was kind of like this, uh, is this okay? Like, I've been told all my life that, wait, is this, I don't know if this is right. Should I be having this much fun? It was, 
It was a weird dynamic. And, and my wife and I have both talked about this as adults. Like, there's got to be a way in church and in family that we talk about it in a way. Like Song of Solomon, a couple times the writer says, listen, don't awaken love before it's time. But when it's time, woohoo! That's, the, that's, that's in the message. <laughs> right? So it's designed to be pretty cool. That's God's design for it. Right? We just want to say God's design includes boundaries. And as I'll get to this um, in my next point, God is very clear about this because as our designer, he knows and understands that within his design, this is a beautiful and good and holy thing. Outside of his design, there's consequences that we don't want. And so those things are given to us for our good. So I, I think the embarrassment that we feel at times is actually a godly embarrassment. It's not meant to be public. It's not meant to have other people see. It's meant to be a safe space between a husband and a wife in which, I don't know, exhilaration is my best word. I mean, it can also be comforting. It can be healing. It can be all kinds of things. But God's design is that there's something about this, frankly, that I think is a foretaste of heaven. That's the design. And maybe this is a good place to say this clearly now. If you're married... And this is not an aspect of your relationship that is flourishing, or it is part of your relationship and you just don't enjoy it. Can I really encourage you to talk to someone about this? That's not God's design for you. Now, like I said, I recognize there can be illnesses, physical limitations. There can be things in it that can undermine what God intends. But, but then visit a doctor. Right? God intends this to be part of your relationship for your good, for his glory. And if it's not healthy, can I just encourage you, find a, a Christian counselor, talk to a pastor, find a trusted friend, whatever. Please walk into it. Don't walk away from it. I mean, you can come talk to me. You're welcome to come talk to me. I'll, I'll talk to you about different ways. Sheila and I have had to walk into the dynamics of our sexual relationship also. I, I don't mind talking to you about it, but I, I'm just... This is God's intent for you if you are married, that you flourish in this area. Not because that's the purpose of marriage, and not because just flourishing that area will automatically give you a good marriage. I'm, I'm telling you, I think biblically it's a barometer. It's a measure of some kind of health. So please don't avoid it if that's something that you need to walk into. All right, it's common and it's holy. It's private with public consequences. It's simultaneously at times embarrassing and exhilarating. And I would add another point that it either unites and builds us or it divides and destroys us. So God intends it to initiate covenant and reaffirm covenant. And in doing so, it is meant to joyfully intertwine our lives, not just our bodies. The purpose of sex is not mere pleasure, though that's a part of it. The, the purpose, the deepest purpose of sex, I believe, is unitive. It's meant to bring us closer together. And if it's not bringing a husband and wife closing together, but is in fact driving them apart, that's a sign that something's not right in the relationship. 
And once again, I encourage you to walk into that if that's what's going on. Don't stifle it or hide it. you, you got to be honest and figure out what's going on with that. But it's designed to increase our honor, our love, our service to each other. Even science supports this. If you read what happens as your body releases different chemicals in the brain, etc., it's quite this list of words that are hard to pronounce. They're all part of God's design that are meant to help two people to cleave, to go back to the words of Genesis. It's not only meant to join you, it's meant to make you want to keep joining. It's it's a God-given urge. But that same thing can also be remarkably destructive. So, if you've ever been abused by someone sexually, you know this. That something God designed for good was used for evil. And the scars that it leaves are significant. And it's part of the reminder of why this area of our life is so powerful. Because the good that it gives when done rightly within God's design is almost unparalleled. But the damage that can be done when it's not used with God's design is also almost unparalleled. And that can, include, that can include a lot of things. That can include just straight-up abuse. It can include a husband and a wife who aren't honoring each other, but are being uh, forceful or pushy and demanding things rather than loving and moving naturally into that area. It can be when someone withholds sex to punish someone else. There's all kinds of ways the distortion can go wrong. And when the distortion goes wrong in this area, it just, it leaves a trail. It leaves damage. So the mantra of the 60s was make love, not war. This idea that if we could just have free, unboundaried sex, we could all be at peace. Let me ask you, has free, unboundaried sex led to peace? No. No, because covenant requires boundaries. Those boundaries are for our good. See, the biblical message is not that we're anti-sex. It was not that we're anti-fun. It's not that we're anti-joy. The biblical message is that we're for it. We just understand something that many people struggle to understand. The boundaries are for our good. You see so many examples just in the natural world. Rivers are at their best when they're in their banks. Right? Uh, Cars are at their best when they stay on their side of the road. And and you see, even with cars is a great example, there's a community interest in the boundaries that are in place for all of us to follow. We aren't designed to be unboundaried. We are inescapably sexually covenantal, and covenants thrive in boundaries. I like this section in Proverbs, which describes the beauty of boundaries. This is from Proverbs 5, beginning of verse 15. Here's what you should do to be satisfied. And by the way, this passage is written to men, but that was primarily the audience at the time, so I'm just adding some language so that we understand this is meant to be a normative way of thinking for men and women. Here's what you should do to be satisfied. Go home and drink in the pleasures of your own cistern, that is, your wife or your husband, so the image of a well that refreshes us. Enjoy the sweet, fresh water that has been there all along, flowing from your own well. And take care. Should your own springs, your body, be freely shared? Should your streams of water satisfy anyone in the streets? Absolutely not. 
They should be kept pure for you and you alone, not for sharing with strangers. May your fountain, that is your sex life, be blessed by God, and may you know true joy with the wife or husband of your youth. So just two verses before that, the writer of Hebrews reminded us to share everything with strangers, but not this. This is not meant to be shared. Some things are designed to be exclusive and protected, and this is one of them. So let's just do a little bit of theology about where we see covenant in the Bible. First of all, salvation is a covenant. The Bible describes it in this way. And there's Christ and we're the bride of Christ. So there's a marriage analogy and a couple things happen. Number one, I can have no other gods. This covenant is meant to be pure and undefiled. In fact, the Old Testament uses language that, uh, of idolatry and adultery kind of with an equal sign in between. That when Israel, as the people of God, and we would now use the term for us as bride of Christ, when they pursue other gods, it's a form of spiritual adultery. Adultery is idolatry. And so it's important that I prioritize the one in this covenant. I organize my life around God. I organize my priorities around God. This is my covenant. Nothing else plays this role in my life. The second covenant we see is church, living in what's called a covenantal community. So we're all people of covenant. And because of that, uh, I dare not bring false or idolatrous things into this community of covenanted people. Because now I'm bringing something in. It's not just my covenant that's being broken. I'm bringing something into the community of covenanted people that might cause them to stumble. I prioritize this community as the one that will be formative. As a follower of Christ, what is the thing that ought to be the most formative part of my life, the community? Well, I have my family, but it shouldn't be the workplace. It shouldn't be my gym. It shouldn't be my TV. It shouldn't be my favorite shows or the music I listen to. It shouldn't be my school. My covenant community is you all. Look around you, just briefly, look around you. This is your covenant community. This is the community that ought to be the most formative community in your life. And what that in the same way that I organize my life so that God is a priority with my time, my thoughts, my money, my schedule, all kinds of things like that. This is covenant community. What kind of priority does it play in your life? Do you order the rest of your life around covenant community? Or do you make covenant community respond to the rest of your schedule? Is that a hard question? It should be. I'm deadly serious about that. Do we make church adjust to other things we want to do? Or do we adjust the other things we want to do to church? That's, that's part of covenant. Come on, we're in covenant community. That is part of covenant. And then the third covenant we see in scripture is marriage, a covenant with a spouse. So I can have no other lover. This covenant is meant to be pure and undefiled. I prioritize the one in my covenant. Sorry, y'all, but if push comes to shove, I'm spending time with my wife. Y'all are down the list. To my shame, that was not always the case when I was in ministry because I thought it was super holy and spiritual to prioritize all of you over my wife, and it's not. 
It was actually sin. Now, this doesn't mean that I don't want to value you. You're my covenant community. But my wife is my covenant spouse. For all of you married folk out there, is that the reality of your life? For all of you who are thinking about getting married, understand if you enter into covenant, you have a new priority. It's a God-given priority. Now, why do I bring these three up? Because I think they're intertwined. Because all three are covenantal. I think what happens in one area of covenant will influence how we think of other areas of covenant. So, for example, um, if I don't prioritize God, which should be my most important covenant relationship, if I don't prioritize my life so that God is front and center, why would you think I would prioritize my wife when it comes to my relationships with other people? If I haven't prioritized the one who holds my eternal soul in his hand, why would I prioritize the one who simply has my wallet in her hand? You follow me? And in the same way, I suspect if I don't understand what it looks like to value the covenant of my wife in the community of people, I suspect I'm going to struggle what it looks like to value my covenant with God among other gods. And now let's throw church into the mix because I think that's part of it too. If this really is a, a community of covenant people, and it's where we experience together our covenants with God, I suspect that our view of covenant with God and our view of covenant with spouse will be intertwined with our view of covenant in this community. Is this a hard teaching? I, I don't know that I always felt that way, but I feel like this more and more that biblically speaking, we, we have to see the covenantal aspects of our lives as intertwined and forming all the other aspects. So, for example, if you're married and you're struggling with your view of God, what it means to be a covenant with God, I would encourage you to press into your Bible for one, but also I would press into your covenant with your spouse and into your covenant with this church or in this community. Because I suspect revitalizing one or two of those covenants will, will inevitably revitalize the other or help to revitalize the other. Are you struggling with your covenant with your spouse? I really encourage you, press into your covenant with God, what that looks like, and press into this covenant community. I, I can't cite you one specific verse to proof text this. But it, it feels to me that that's the message of Scripture. And when we do this, uh, something very important happens. We are sanctified, and we build this brotherly love community around us. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. So now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, and this is the will of God, your sanctification. Note this, they're living in a way that pleases God, which is awesome. He's saying, do this more and more. We give you this instruction by the authority of Jesus. The will of God is your sanctification, and here's the first thing. You should avoid sexual immorality. 
Live with your own wife in a way that is holy and honorable, not overpowered by lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should exploit, that is, take what is not theirs, or violate, go beyond boundaries, a brother or sister. Ah, there's your brotherly love component. That if we are not careful, we damage the brotherly love of our brothers and sisters in Christ if we become the kind of people who exploit or violate. So I looked up the definitions for these things. Thessalonica, the community to which this was written, was a place that was very active in commerce. It's kind of a hub of trading at that time. So I suspect the writer of Thessalonians was using language that his readers were familiar with. Here briefly is what it looks like to exploit or violate. You transgress the bounds of justice. That means simply that you know what ought to be done, but you push the boundaries. You could cheat and defraud people. That usually has to do with weighted scales. That is, this idea that you might devalue something that you take from someone, then overvalue something that you sell to someone. Increasing or lessening the value and the prices of goods by the buyer or seller. Not keeping to the bargain or the contract or the covenant or taking advantage of the weakness and ignorance of people. Basically, you spot those who are easy to manipulate and you manipulate them for your purposes. Now, tell me as we go to the next screen, does this not, is this not language that works as we discuss handling our sex lives? Do, are we people who enforce the boundaries of justice or are we the kind of people who we know what ought to be done but we're going to be the ones who push the boundary? Do we help others flourish or do we weight the scales to our advantage? I mean, if the scales are going to tip in my relationship with someone, I want them to tip toward honor and purity. If I'm having a conversation with someone else and I'm concerned, this might be getting flirtatious. Which way should the scales tip if I'm a follower of Christ? Do I walk into that flirtation and go, I wonder how far I can push this boundary without actually going too far? Or do I go, whoa, whoa. Uh, I'm not tipping the scales that way, a follower of Jesus. Uh, a, I want to honor that person. If I'm a married person, uh, I need to honor my spouse. This is inappropriate, and I back off of that. I walk away from that. Do we attach the proper value to people and sex? So we increase the value of sex and intimacy by treating it like a precious gift, which means we guard our purity and we guard the purity of others. And I know some people find that language offensive in the sense like, you don't have to guard other people. Um, actually, I do. It's a biblical command. I need to guard them from myself, for sure. But let me tell you, if I have a friend who is, who dishonors women, I have a biblical obligation to step into that friend's life and go, dude, stop it. Am I guarding another person? Sure I am. Does that mean they're weak? No. It doesn't mean the person they were pursuing was weak. It just means I have an obligation. I guard my heart, and I'm on the lookout for other hearts that might be damaged, and I seek to step in and offer what guardianship I can of that. I want to attach the proper value to sex and sexuality. Uh, I keep an honor covenants. So let me just put it this way. We are, we are interacting with either, either someone else's covenantal spouse or someone who may well become a covenantal spouse. 
I don't know where everyone's life goes. God comes, calls some people to singleness. I'm not suggesting marriage is the only place that our lives end up, but the possibility is there. So that means I not only position myself so that I value people who are in covenant, I position myself so that I value people who might be in covenant. So that's everybody. It's everybody. So if I can't sleep with someone else who's in a covenant because that's adultery, I ought not sleep with someone who's not in covenant because they may have a covenant coming. I mean, there's other arguments to make for this. Simply the Bible says don't. But I'm making a covenantal argument this morning. Why would I want to diminish a future covenant? In fact, why would I want to lie with my body and go, oh, hey, I can offer you covenant now, and I'm not offering them covenant now. And so the implications are for everybody about protecting and guarding this. Which brings me to the last one about protecting the weak and the vulnerable. Uh, listen, we live in a Me Too culture. There, there was a lot of vulnerable people in our world. I told my boys as they were growing up, I said, listen, there's at least one thing you've got to be as you grow into a man. You've got to be the kind of guy that women are safe around. You've got to get that right. Because we live in a culture where so many women are not safe from the men in their lives. Boys, I mean, I want you to flourish in Christ in full maturity, but you've got to get this right. Women are safe around you. If the church becomes the place where that characterizes us, that's city on a hill, friends. That is city on a hill. Uh, women, you don't get a pass on this. Are men safe around you? It's our biblical call. Now, think what the world looks like when we are safe around each other in this area. That is a community in which brotherly love flourishes. That is a community where you walk into every situation, whether it's a Sunday morning or a coffee or a lunch, or you're at someone's house or a vacation Bible school, you name it. Now you know when you walk in there, you will be at peace. You will be safe in this area because it's a community of people committed to love flourishing in our midst, and in this particular case, very specifically, honoring people in this way. Once again, if the church is a place like that, this is an oasis in a culture that breaks people. The church becomes the place in which God clearly heals people through his word, his Holy Spirit, and the love of the people around us. And can we be honest? Many of us in here bring brokenness in this area. Sometimes it's because of choices we made. But sometimes it's because of choices other people made against us. So this is the kind of community that God calls us to be where people can bring any of those scenarios into this church body and find God's healing expressed in flesh and blood through God's people. 
who walk with them, who are safe for them, who build them up and encourage them and help them see what healing and hope and restoration and forgiveness looks like. I'm, I'm telling you, friends, if that's who we are, that, that's compelling gospel right there. Kent Hughes, I'm almost done. I warned Emily I was going to be late. I like how Kent Hughes says it. He says, we Christians are called to be outrageously pure, to be a source of wonder and even derision to this glandular world. From the beginning to the end of Hebrews, the abiding concern of the author has been to so instruct the tiny Hebrew church that it would stay afloat on the increasingly hostile seas of first century Roman culture. Their ship was a microscopic dot on the massive billows of the official pagan and secular enterprise, and they were eminently vulnerable. It appeared to outside eyes that the external forces could sink it at will, but the author knew that the internal threat to the church was far more deadly. In fact, he knew that it could ride out any storm if things were right on the inside. And he knows that nothing will sink a church faster than moral wavering in respect to sex, materialism, or mental outlook. And I think that's actually a summary of the three verses now we've covered under the brotherly love heading. Here's intimate advice regarding how to keep our ship afloat. It is so essential that any church that ignores it will founder and possibly even sink. But the reverse of that is, if we embrace it, not only do we not sink, we sail. Right? It's how we flourish in the kingdom of God. So take these three things away, if nothing else. God is for his children, first point. His boundaries are for the flourishing of his children. And then his love offers healing and hope and new life to any of us whose lives have been affected by sin in this area. That's why sex is important for brotherly love to continue. That's why our sex lives matter as children of God. And that's also why we have to talk about it honestly, about the joy it offers when done within God's design, but the damage it also offers what done outside of it because God is for your flourishing I am for your flourishing I must communicate this as honestly as I can let's do this as we close a reminder taco lunch stay for tacos if you can't stay leave money support your youth 1145 meeting in room 6 all of you who would like to hear about Jana Marcia's ministry Take your tacos and go there. Uh, I suspect they'll be doing some setup here as soon as we dismiss. But I'd like to offer this. Instead of uh, uh, welcoming you up front to pray at the end of the service, I'd like to welcome you to pray in the prayer room. If this has pushed any buttons in you, we would love to pray with you and talk with you about this. And there might be an element of embarrassment. You're like, if people see me walk into that prayer room, they're going to know I'm praying. To um, so my best advice is get over that. We're family here. We're covenant community. If that's what's holding you back, please don't let that hold you back. And if you want to pray about something else, come join us for prayer if you think, what if they think I'm going in to pray about sex? Get over that. We'd love to pray with you. So Lord, I'm grateful that you're a God who loves us and cares about us. I'm grateful that your word directs us and guides us. And I'm grateful 
that not only do you work in us individually through your word and your spirit and your people, but you also have a bigger goal, and that is to build a church that is salt and light in the culture, that is this shining city in the midst of darkness that is compelling. And Lord, I believe that's not only the message of your salvation, which is the heart of the gospel, but I believe it's also the message of healing and hope and new life that you offer and the idea that there's this community of people uh, who offer a place of truth and hope and joy and healing and genuine love. Oh God, may that be us. May that be us. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.